your Locked On Senators, your daily podcast on the Ottawa Senators, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm Jake Sanderson, and you're listening to Locked On Senators Podcast. I'm Tim Stützle, and you're listening to the Locked On Senators Podcast. Welcome inside episode 345 of the Locked On Senators Podcast. I'm Ross Levitan in the heart of enemy territory, downtown Toronto, alongside Brandon Pillar up in Collingwood. Today's episode is brought to you by the Spotify Green Room. Download the Spotify Green Room app and join Pillsy and I tomorrow morning, Saturday morning at 8.45 to get in on the conversation. Used to be Locker Room, now Spotify Green Room, changing the way we talk sports. Well, the Montreal Canadiens have changed the way we talk about the North Division this season as they make their mark towards the Stanley Cup, defeating the Vegas Golden Knights. We'll break down that game. We also have Scott Wheeler Part 2. Of course, prospect writer with The Athletic. Great conversation on middle targets. I say middle, but I mean the picks in the second and third round for the Ottawa Senators in this upcoming draft. We also get into Jesper Wallstad, which was topical after Corey Pronman had him going to the Sens at number 10, goalie-friendly show. And who is he hoping the Sens pick in round two? They've got those two picks, three apart. And, well, he has a few names for us there all that and more this is the locked on senators podcast your team every day today is friday june 25th and pilsy i gotta say man i'm conflicted these are conflicting times ross what are you conflicted about well, recently, you know, you've been thinking and seeing Montreal make their way towards the Stanley Cup final. And, you, you know, there's oh, it leaves a bit of a bad taste in your mouth. But then as a goalie-friendly show, we can't brush over what Carey Price has been doing. I want to throw at you his numbers in his last five series clinching games. Thanks to at John Pearlberg on Twitter. He's the CFL, NHL, and TSN stats guy. 5-0 and record. A goals against a shade under one, 0.99 goals against average, a 967 save percentage, and two shutouts. Last night, he was incredible, keeping this game close enough that we end up going overtime. Wow. Talk about coming up clutch. And for everyone that's saying or has said and hand up, that probably includes me and you, Ross, that Carey Price's contract is going to be a real tough thing for this Habs to build a complete roster. Well, when you start with a goaltender that puts up numbers like that in clutch games, I think you can make your case that it's well worth it. And good on him. The .99, that's real nice to get under one for goals against average. Yeah, and he has worked so hard. Fifth overall pick in 2005, had one trip to the conference final in 2014. Beyond that, not much playoff success for Montreal or for Carey Price. He's caught his fair share of Olympic experience, winning gold in Sochi in 2014 and gold at the World Juniors. Like This guy's won at different levels. World Cup, he was a starting goalie for Canada there, but this is the one that every athlete hockey player has circled and that's the Stanley cup. And now Carey price will have his first opportunity in his what 15th season 
He's got to be getting close to that. So you got to tip your hat. Not only that, but how about the job that former Binghamton Senators head coach Luke Richardson did being thrown into such a tough situation and now he's undefeated. Yeah, I think if you're the Montreal Canadiens, don't you just put the interim tag on him now and you say, sorry, Dominique Ducharme, but we're going to go with what works. I mean, Mark Bergman does that. He wears his red suit because it's lucky and they got the win. And I know, obviously, we're, we're a Sens podcast, but it was pretty cool to see a general manager get that fired up about a win and, and really kind of he had that uh, pregame speech in the locker room, like really kind of bond with that team. So, you know, good on the Habs. This is a massive, massive thing for them. The last Canadian team to win a Stanley Cup, Ross, was in my birth year, 1993, 28 years ago. And it was the same Montreal Canadiens that did it. So they have a chance to kind of restart that clock. And it's going to be one hell of a show to see how they do in the Stanley Cup final. Tonight, we will find out their opponent. It's Game 7, Lightning Islanders. We'll touch on that following part two of our interview with Scott Wheeler. But you mentioned Stanley Cup wins. How about Stanley Cup finals appearances by the Canadian clubs? Montreal jumping into first place, 2021. Got to go back 10 years since the Vancouver Canucks made it to the Stanley Cup final. Ottawa, 2007. Edmonton 2006, Calgary 2004, that's three in a row because, as you remember, there was no playoffs in 2005. Did did I miss any teams while I was going back through there? I mean, we're not going to count Winnipeg. They've only, had, they've only had their team back for 10 years. But other than that, did I miss anybody? Uh, heart hmm. of enemy territory. Oh, the Leafs. When oh, was the Leafs' right. last Stanley Cup final right. appearance, Ross? Right. That was 1967, back when there were only six teams in the league, and nobody who plays in the NHL was born at that time. You got to ask your grandparents about that. I think that's a story, Ross, that it's not recorded on paper. It's through word of mouth. Like if you're at the <laughs> campfire, if you have an elder in your family, he can talk to you about 1967, the Toronto Maple Leafs winning the Stanley Cup. But other than that, it's lost history. Yeah, and they call it Maple Leaf Gardens, I think, was where they said they play. But I thought that that garden was just because it's a Loblaws now. They've got all the produce there. <laughs> <laughs> but enough Leaf bashing. That's always uh, good fun, however. And especially if the Islanders can pull it out tonight because we know the ties run deep there with Lou Lamorello. Ties also run deep with Ottawa. No, no, we'll save that for afterwards. But a couple more notes on the Habs. Like, this Cole Caulfield kid's pretty nasty, eh? Like, that goal... Not many guys are doing that in the NHL. Yeah, I mean, that's that's just a pure play where you get speed, skill, and IQ all in, all in one because he didn't have much time to get that shot off, Ross, and he absolutely roofed it on Leonard. Great goal, and, you know, it's it's crazy to think that these three guys, Caulfield, Suzuki, and Kokaniemi, they're really a, a big part of the reason why this Habs team is where they are today. And like, talk about Carey Price, but you got to put those three in the mix, too. Like, they've done an incredible job stepping up to the plate when, really, this team needs them. They don't have that star power that a lot of these teams have, like Vegas, that they like, just beat, like... Sure, Josh Anderson and Toffoli are, are great players, but I wouldn't classify them as stars. So for these young guys to say, hey, we're going to take things over and we're going to provide the offense, good on them. They've clearly found a line that's ticking there with Suzuki in between Toffoli and Caulfield. But I think the lesson that's, that's being learned here from how the Habs built their team, now you can agree or disagree with the size on the back end and how they're really riding their top four defensemen. 
But up front, they have four lines that can score. And each night, it seems like it's a different line that comes up clutch. It's Arturi Lekkanen that gets the overtime game winner that sends them to the final last night. Yeah, who would have thought that? Eh? Hell of a play by Deneau as well. To draw the defenders into the middle and go backside, no chance for Leonard. Yeah, I like Philip Deneau a lot. I think I made a case for the Sens to try to go after him in the offseason earlier, but I don't think Montreal's letting go of him either. And you talk about four lines I can score, Ross, but each of these lines can defend as well. You know, like it's not like you have, all right, here's our top line. They're going to score the goals. Here's our third line. They're going to be a checking line. Like there's a mix of each type of attribute that you need in each of those lines. And that's why they do so well. And there's also veteran experience on each line. So I think Mark Bergevin has really done a good job uh, constructing this team. He was a finalist for GM of the year. So you can see the pieces are all fitting together here. And if Carey Price stays like this, I'm not sure either Tampa Bay or New York can solve him in the final. Ooh, are you calling a Hab Stanley Cup win? I, I'm not calling it. I just think it's going to be difficult. And Ross, I, this is a little shameful, but I may start steering towards the Habs because I have a future bet on them. Gross. When, strictly for monetary financial reasons, Ross. Whenever a team fires their head coach mid-season, I immediately put a bet on them to win the Stanley Cup. So when Claude Julien was fired, I put $10 on the Habs to win the Cup to return 230 It was plus 2,200 odds, and I'm still riding that. So I think part of me is going to lean towards the Habs here to fill my, uh, my wallet with some green numbers a little more. Never talk about another man's job, but that was my favorite week of the regular season where the Sens yeah. got both Claude Julia and Jeff Ward fired. And, and a goaltending coach. Don't forget that, too. Oh, yeah. Mid-game, too, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it was mid-game. Man, except Sean Burke's come in and just told Kerry Price, hey, you know that you're good at stopping pucks, right? And while Price has answered the bell, that's saving overtime before the play went the other way. This, I believe, it's at least their second time, maybe the third, where... They don't gain possession at overtime. The other team gets a great opportunity. Price makes a huge save. I remember in the Leaf series it happened. And then they come down and they score on their first shot of overtime. It's unreal. Now, the overtime percentage this year is greater than in, I think it's the third most percentage of games that have gone to overtime. And they're also ending quicker than, there's not, hasn't been those marathon games that you love where it's a war of attrition. Who's going to bend first? These guys are coming out ready to go and, these overtimes, I believe, have lasted an average of just under five minutes. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, like I, I was coming home from work. It was the end of the third period. I was like, sweet, I'm going to be able to watch this overtime game. I get in my house, turn on the TV, game's over. What? How did that happen so quickly? But yeah, good on the Montreal Canadiens finishing that up. And Ross, I talked about their ability to defend. How about killing penalties up against the Vegas Golden Knights? 100% success rate on the penalty kill against one of the best teams in the entire NHL. Like to be able to shut down the Vegas Golden Knights like that. Now, mind you, I'm sure in, in this following week, we're going to get the classic injury report from Pete DeBoer. Mark Stone's got to be injured. I think everyone can agree on that. We're going to see guys having, you know, hurt, hurt shoulders, like all these kinds of things are going to pop up probably because that Vegas Golden Knights team did not look like themselves, not trying to take anything away from the Canadians. But yeah, I don't think like, we probably have to go back quite a while to find a semifinal where one team completely shut the door and had a hundred percent on the penalty kill. 
And Pills, you have to go even further back to the last time we had two Eastern Conference teams going head-to-head in the Stanley Cup Final. 1980 is the last time. 41 years ago, the New York Islanders began their four-year dynasty with a Stanley Cup Final win over the Philadelphia Flyers. Hell, the years before that were all East versus East. Montreal, New York Rangers, Montreal, Boston, twice in a row, 77-78. And then in 1976, the Habs won again against the Philadelphia Flyers. Sick parody in the NHL, eh? The Habs win four in a row, and then the Islanders win four in a row. And then Edmonton wins four out of the next five with Montreal getting the only other one in there. But, man, you, you can't say enough about the quality of hockey that we've seen throughout the Stanley Cup playoffs. But in Ottawa's case, you need to get to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And how do you do that? You draft and develop. And that's why Scott Wheeler's work is so important. He's been covering the draft with The Athletic for the past five seasons. And, well, he obviously does a great job. But his resume goes way further back. He actually, anyone in the Ottawa area, he used to cover the 67s and Gatineau Olympique. We get into that with him. Uh, talk some of Vitalia Bramov. We get in to a player you really like in Chase Stillman. Yes, for Wallstad. And who's he banging on the table for, for the sense of draft, if he's with Pierre Dorian on July 24th, second day of the NHL draft. All right, let's get to our conversation with athletic prospect writer, Scott Wheeler. A guy that I really like in the second round for the Sens. Maybe considering your rankings, it doesn't uh, work out. But Chase Stillman is someone that, uh, again, dad yeah, played for the one. Sens. And uh, his dad is also his coach. So there's a lot of influence there. I think that can be fair to say. What do you think about a guy like Chase Stillman for the Ottawa Senators? Well, it's interesting because he played for his dad in his first year and then they never got up and running this year. And he went over and took a pretty unconventional route and played in Denmark's Junior League of all places, which, if I'm being honest, is virtually impossible to evaluate. I watched him play a couple of those games and it's a, it's a gong show. So uh, he was playing pickup beer league hockey. In a, like, like There are guys I played beer league hockey with who could cut their teeth in that league right so um that that's the kind of level it was at and he was a two point per game there in his short stint but he plays a game honestly a lot like his dad did and his dad obviously coached in Arizona now so it was an assistant with Arizona this year so maybe Arizona's got their eyes on him and on Josh Dome for all we know um but it he he plays a, a sort of hard two-way game. He works hard. He skates well. He's at another very athletic kid, a lot like Cole Sillinger is. Um, but there's some talent there. And I think more talent there than he was able to show in Sudbury last year. He definitely didn't end up in a bad role on that team because of his dad. There's no question he, he had opportunities to play on that team. But um, the, there's a little bit more skill there. that he, I think he got to flash briefly in, in also in a depth role for Canada at U18s where he looked impressive. Uh, in the minutes that he did get at least. So he he's going to be kind of that third line type if he makes it. But I like him as that kind of a B-level prospect who you take in, in the middle round. So I think if he goes in the 30 or the 40s at the front of the second round, which is possible for him, that that's probably a bit too high. But once you get beyond that sort of front half of the second round, late second into the third and fourth round, he, he's a good pick there. Yeah, Ottawa drafts 10th. 39th, 42nd, 74th, and then not for a long time after. So maybe that's 74th. I think he'll be I think he'll be gone by 74, and I probably wouldn't take him earlier. That would probably be where I'm at on that. 
Okay, I have a couple other questions about the top end of the draft, but while we're on bloodlines and we know that the Sens don't only draft for bloodlines, but guys who play alongside others of their prospects, and it's not often that you see a Finnish junior team have two prospects that you have ranked in your top 50, and the team was a wagon. Carpats, U20, junior team. Now, Vili Koivinen and Samu Tuomala. Which one of those two guys do you like more? Oh, uh, I enjoy watching Billy more. I, I think Samu is probably a slightly better prospect, but I think that could go either way. I've actually, in terms of the kind of prospect and the kind of player that I enjoy watching and that I think projects in, in today's game, I think Billy is the better prospect that way. Uh, but it, it was pretty tight for me all year. And I think Samu's ability to put the puck in the net will probably separate him a little bit and kind of did at different points this year. They were kind of up, both up and down on my board. Uh, but Sam, who's a natural goal scorer who can shoot the puck off the flank, kind of reminds me of Eli Tolvanen of, at the same time in his draft class. Eli was a kid who was a bit on the smaller side, wasn't the greatest skater in the world, but had excellent hands and could really rip the puck. And it's taken Eli a little longer than I expected him to, to figure it out, but he was good in Nashville this year, and I think he's going to have a nice career for himself as, as kind of a second-line winger who can play on your power play. And I think Samu, at his very ceiling, is kind of that same kind of player. Vili, I think there's more of a boomer bust element to Vili. He's just a slick, kind of creative, inventive, a little bit of a genius out there in terms of just the way that he operates. Um, so that's that's fun to me. That like that excites me. They're both legitimate sort of second round talents, maybe even late firsts. So that's some of the finished talent, and uh, there's a couple of them on your list here. The one glaring nationality, to me, I thought it was crazy that we didn't see any German prospects in the top 100. Like Ross and I were talking about it today, up ever since the Leon Dreisaitl draft, it seems like not only has there been some high-end German talent, but there's also been some guys in the second round. We saw that last year, and some, some at least good prospects from the country of Germany but this year it doesn't seem like there's any do you have any sort of inclination why this draft year there isn't any talent coming out of Germany oh um well it's just a I, I think it's cyclical that they're still a country right. that I think is going to come and go a little bit they're definitely producing talent at a better clip the DEL is now a better league than it was 20 years ago it, the DEL is attracting better North American players than it was and their, their junior leagues are starting to develop a little bit of cachet where they don't have to leave. They don't have to decide to go a different direction. They don't have to come over to North America to figure it out. They don't need to be drafted in the CHL import draft to get attention. Um, so all of that is going to help them long term. But this is just a year that's a little bit weaker. Florian Eliash obviously made a name for himself playing with, with Paterka and Stutzla at the World Juniors and looking like he belonged. And then he went back to Mannheim and had a pretty good year in Mannheim for a tiny little guy like he is so he's interesting he, he's he wasn't on my board but I, I wouldn't balk at him going in this if a team decided to take him in the sixth or seventh round so you may see a German get picked but it's a it's definitely a weaker draft they will have a little bit of a comeback again next year Julian Lutz who's playing for the Red Bull Academy is going to be a first rounder in next year's draft out of Germany so um th that's another one kind of not in the Stutzler range but more in that kind of Paterka Reichel uh, tier of prospect so that's it another good step forward for them so they're in a better spot and they're definitely making progress uh, but this year for whatever reason was just a bit of an odd one just while we're on the nationality filter of how your top 100 shakes out 43 canadians 24 americans and 11 swedes 11 Finns. 
only seven Russians. Is that a surprise to you that there's less Russians? Or is this typical for the last four years you've been doing this at The Athletic? Yeah, no, pretty typical. Typically kind of high 30s, low 40s for the Canadians out of the 100 players. The the other countries, normally U.S. is second, kind of in the 20s in terms of number of players there. And then you're always between 8 and kind of 15 for for the three top sort of giants of, of, of Europe. But normally the Russians typically are at the bottom of that that grouping for me. You'll see 12, 13 Swedes or, or Finns and then eight or nine or 10 Russians uh, in, in my top 10 in a given year. And that's just because A, it's, uh, the, those leagues are very difficult to evaluate. The difference between some of the divisions in the MHL and the VHL and some of the top teams and the bottom teams in those leagues is like a canyon. Um, the, 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 it, there, there are some brutal programs in those leagues that make it tough to evaluate whether you're on that team and you're a good player on a terrible team or whether you're on Moscow and you're ripping it up against these clubs every week, right? Like it's, it's a complicated sort of puzzle to solve. And then they, they, honestly, I just don't think they produce very many defensemen. And so you get your seven or eight forwards every year but the, the Swedes and the Finns get that, and then they also have four or five good defensemen every year. And the, the Russians just don't do that these days. They're, I think it's starting to show it at the World Junior level. I thought their defensemen, their group of six that they brought to the World Juniors was brutal this year. And I think it's going to be the same next year, frankly. So it's, they just need to do a better job producing D. They, they produce goalies and they produce forwards, but every year I'm, I tend to be lower on the defensemen that, they, that they're producing than others are. And I think some of those kids get the benefit of doubt of, the air quotes, top Russian defensemen. And as a result, they, they're high picks when maybe they shouldn't be. And I think you're going to see the same thing happen with Daniil Chaika this year, who's probably going to be a late first-round pick and probably doesn't deserve to be. So the Russians, they've had a tough goal of it the last few years in terms of producing quality talent in, in numbers. They, they still have good players every year that, that are sort of first-round talents. There's two or three kids every year. And obviously, Matt Benichkov is has a chance to be a superstar, uh, so they've got a, a true sort of not maybe not Ovechkin tier level prospect coming, but not not honestly not far off. So uh, that will help them in a big way as well. So like closer to Ovechkin than let's say Tarasenko. Yes, yes, no question. Michkov wow. is a much better pro, much better player at the same age than Tarasenko and Kucherov and all those guys were. Wow. So we've talked uh, centermen slash wingers. We've talked <laughs> defensemen. Now, it's a, we, you know we're a hashtag goalie-friendly show, so we got to get into the goaltending Two situation. in the first round. Let's go. Yeah, it could be yeah. very interesting this year. Well, Pilsy, another similarity, Scott, just to double down when you said 2012. I think that, that's the last time there's been two goalies in the first round with Vasilevsky yep. and Malcolm Subban. Yeah, so so I don't think it's in the cards for the Sens to draft a goalie uh, in the first round this year. We'll see. Who knows what happens? But I want to get your opinion, especially now that we've seen kind of Skarov, Spencer Knight, a lot of talent being drafted mm-hmm. in the first round early. There's kind of two sides to the argument, right? Like some people say, oh, it's too risky to use a first round pick on a goalie because they're 17, 18 years old. Who knows how they're going to turn out? Just go with the forward and try to roll the dice on a goalie later. But then we're also seeing some of the best uh, hockey teams and the ones in the semifinals are playing with goalies that were drafted high in the draft and they're proving that argument Mm -hmm. wrong. So with a guy like Jesper Wallstead, where do you stand on the ideology of drafting a goalie high and is this the kind of goalie that you take that risk on? 
Yeah, so it's an interesting conversation, and I've had this with a few scouts over the last couple of years, but I think one of the reasons that this narrative developed that we need to stop taking goalies in the first round was because there developed this sense where if you if you if you wanted the top goalie in the first in the in the any given draft class, you had to take him in the first round or he wasn't going to be available. And I think that sort of just created this snowball effect into a series of mistakes where we were seeing, I mean, all all due respect to Jack Campbell and Jake Ottinger and some of these goalies that have gone in the last 10 years, but they were taken too high. And I think they were taken too high because they were the top goalie in the draft and the team that wanted them said, we need to, we need to, we need him because there just aren't very many goalies that are available in every draft and our prospect pool doesn't have any. So I think that's where teams run into mistakes when there is a legitimate goalie prospect who has a track record of success and has the tools that you're looking for. I don't think it should be a debate. Of course they're worth going in the first round. Like if you can find uh, I was a little lower on Spencer Knight at the time. I thought he was kind of a 30s guy, like a late first, early second kind of guy. And I I was wrong on him. Um, but these other goalies that have come up, like Askarov, he didn't just have that one good junior hockey season where he becomes Mikey DiPietro and he has a good year and everybody gets excited about him, right? And I, I think that's where teams also run into trouble. It's that one-off draft year or that big sort of quote big game performer like a Di Pietro was where they win the Memorial Cup or I mean Zach Fucali was a great example right of this kid who just performed in a few big games and they said okay that's my guy you need if you're going to take that chance on a goalie high in the draft you need to be absolutely certain about them and I think the only way to do that is if they've got two if you're in junior in Canada both of their years need to be impeccable like you can't have an 890 in your rookie year and then have a 915 in your draft year and trust that I I just don't think you can but with Askarov I mean the Askarov's been he's been dominating above his age group for five years right and and with Wallstead it's the same thing like he just never has had a blip in the radar even when he was 14 he was doing things that 14 year olds weren't supposed to be doing and playing in a top junior league and it, it just has been a consistent trend so I think on top of looking for the size and the way they move in the net and their control of their core and their, the, their ability to hold their edges and control the rebounds, all of those things, you just need a track record and you need stats. And I think with forwards and with defensemen, you can sort of project potential in different ways. You can see a kid who was half a point per game in the OHL and say, that's a better hockey player than the kid who was a point per game on a different team and circumstances. And you can judge their circumstances and say, this kid would, if the roles were reversed, who would be the better player? It's, it's harder to do that with goalies because then you're playing a, a really big guessing game, I think. So they just need to, they need to show me. And I think in, in uh, Spencer Knight, I was, I was probably wrong on, but I think in Askarov, in Wallstedt, in Kosa, who came back and had, albeit in a shorter sample size, which does scare me a little, they've done it for two or three or four years. And, and that gives you a, a, a much better sense for who they are. So the one thing with Wallstead and just looking, I mean, the end of the year, the numbers still look decent, especially for his age in a Swedish professional league, the top league, I should say, in Sweden, 22 games, 223 goals against, 908 save percentage. But it seems just looking at his game logs that he lost a starting job down the stretch. I'm looking at 13 goals against in his last three starts, including one in the postseason. Like that doesn't scare you off at all? It does a little bit. I think it might scare me. Like his play in his last month month and a half of the season and then into the playoffs he wasn't at his best it was kind of the first run of 
10, 15 game sample where he didn't look great. Uh, it wasn't, 10, wasn't 15 games, but eight to 10 game sample where he was just kind of mediocre. I don't think that's a huge concern. I mean, we're still talking about a teenager who was playing in the SHL and wasn't getting blown up. Uh, Shut out in his first ever SHL start too. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So it it doesn't scare me off of taking him in the top 15 per se. Uh, I still think he's, he's a worthwhile goalie depending on who who your team is kind of in that eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 kind of range. But in terms of the conversations that, I believed he was in at the midway point of the season when I had seriously considered him as a potential top five prospect in this draft class. His play down the stretch would give me at least a little bit of pause in that kind of a a weep. There's going to be so much intrigue to this draft because it's much like uh, last year's draft. There's so many question marks and there's so many different things that can happen. Uh, A lot of movement Mm -hmm. with the expansion draft thrown in here too. We could see a lot of movement up and down between players. Now, Scott, thanks for taking the time with us. I have one last question and we wouldn't be a Scott Wheeler interview with the Locked On Centers podcast without talking about Vitalia Bramov. Now, we were sad to see him go to the KHL. It just seemed like there was no space for him, and he wasn't getting the opportunities he wanted. Now, he did yeah. leave the door open a little bit, though, with his tweet saying, see you soon, uh, at Senators fans. What do you think the chances are that maybe he's a guy that goes to the KHL, the Sens reserve, uh, retain his rights, he lights it up in the KHL, they see the potential when he's given a top six role in a professional league and they bring him back to come play in Ottawa. Do you see him maybe doing an Evgeny Dadnov style uh, route with his KHL career here? Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I absolutely do see him doing that. Nice. Uh, I, I still believe in the kid, honestly. Uh, his so skating never really found that separating gear that a lot of those smaller kids need. Uh, but everything else in terms of his game with the puck is just so exciting to me and he's he's always shown an ability to work really hard too like he he gets in on the when he does get in on the forecheck and get up and underneath he doesn't look as small out there as he actually is and then I mean I I still go back to it every time but I've talked to prospects who've played with or against him whether it's in the QMJHL the AHL over in Finland this year and they say, like, this kid's ability with the puck on his stick, the things that this guy does in practice, like, it's unbelievable. And, and we've heard that about players before who haven't turned out, and Josh Hosang and others. But I've seen him do it. He was one of my favorite players I've ever watched play in the QMJHL. I thought he had a chance to be a really impact offensive player who was a sort of huge sleeper pick in his draft class and it's just been through circumstances and through a couple of little quirks in his game that have put some coaches off it has been a tough road for him and and now he's in a spot where you start moving around with organizations you start becoming that up and down guy and and teams just start to look elsewhere right for for their signings and, and for their for their opportunities so now he has to make an opportunity for himself but i have very little doubt that he's going to be one of the most entertaining players in the the KHL and they're going to play him and he's going to get an opportunity to be a star there. And I think the fans are going to love him because it's hard not to with the way that he works and the skill that he has. And uh, I I don't know. I, I, I still wouldn't bet against him. He looks to me still like he's got NHL talent. Uh, it's just about the right fit. And sometimes those never come. I, I mean, Daniel Sprong is another kid who's kind of reminded me of him over the years and 
Sprong's bounced between, I mean, he started in Anaheim and then Washington and Pittsburgh, and he's kind of bounced around, but Sprong's now figuring it out. And I, I think Vitaly will as well with, with the talent level that those two guys have. Yeah, we're seeing it as almost a benefit. You get the free development, maintain his rights, and it gives other people an opportunity, let's say an Angus Crookshank, to, to be in Belleville, but then you still have Bram up playing against men. And uh, Scott, I've got two final questions because we couldn't let you go without asking about the one top prospect who's going to North Dakota because we know the pipeline between Ottawa and North Dakota is strong. Right shot defenseman, it's a position of need in the in the depth chart as well. I know JBD just leaves Nodak, and now Brent Johnson goes in. Is he a legit prospect? Yeah, definitely. He was the story in many cases of the, this USHL season. Uh, always been a good prospect growing up and someone that – Scouts, uh, both like me in the public sphere and scouts in the NHL uh, in the private sphere, were familiar with and they liked him. But this year it was like, okay, this kid became in his very first year in the USHL one of its best defensemen and really a dominant defenseman at both ends. And he's not a, di- I wouldn't call him dynamic offensively. Like he's not going to, he's not Ryan Merkley out there. He's not going to break ankles and, and try things and take risks and that kind of a thing. But He's a talented player. He can make plays. And then within his own zone, he's just one of those kind of snuff it out in the neutral zone and break the puck out with ease kind of players. So I really like Brent. His underlying numbers and the people who've done tracking, I mean, Will Scouch is, is, does great work in the public sphere and tra- like his tracking on him is through the roof, right? Like he was unbelievable. One of the most dominant players. And that, that shows up in the, in his uh, goals for goals against data as well. Like he, they just outscored the opposition. It was like three to one when he was on the ice this year. And, and that tells you a lot about a kid, especially when he was playing at that level for the very first time. So he's not, he's not a first round pick for me, but he's a second or third round guy. And I think he's going to be a good player. And maybe that sort of number four or five defender on an NHL club long-term, who's not a six, seven, but maybe not a kind of top three guy for you. And he just did everyday good, two-way modern hockey player who can do a little bit of everything sounds like he might be a guy who's paired with tyler clevin next year at north dakota he could be ying and yang there and we know they took tyler clevin in the second round last year so my final question if you were at the sens draft table and it's pick 39 so there's two right there 39 and 42 who are you banging on the table saying you need to add this guy to the organization Oh, well, it's a good question. It will depend on who's available. I really, he's not the kind of player that they typically go after, but I really like Sean Barron's as a kid who could be available in the sort of middle of the second round, who I think is one of the better defensemen outside of those big four in this draft. So Sean's a kid who I would definitely not shy away from taking because he's five foot nine, five foot 10. He works hard. He works extremely hard off of the puck. He's very engaged for a smaller player. He defends at a high level. And then he, his mobility and his ability to get the puck from A to B and make a play is, is very, very high end in this draft class. So if you're looking for a defenseman there, Sean's probably the kid who's most likely to be available, who's most likely to be the number one D left on my board. And then as far as the forwards go, I mean, there's no goalie I would take there. I, I actually think this, this draft in terms of goalies is really, really weak outside of those big two. I normally have five or six goalies in my top 100, and this year I have two, and it's those two. So a little bit of worries about a lot of the goalies in this draft class. They just aren't very good, I don't think. Uh, but in terms of forwards, other than Barron's on defense, I don't know. Xavier Bourgos, there's always a QMJHL kid that I love who falls, who I think provides value. Sam Girard was one. Abramov was another. Uh, I think Xavier Bourgos has an opportunity to be that kind of a kid this year. 
he's well liked by some scouts I've talked to, but others think he's just kind of good at everything, uh, and they they might steer clear of him in the first round as a result. So I think if if Bourgo is available, he's a very very interesting hockey player and a kid who it just it doesn't really have any holes in his game offensively or defensively. So I'm a big fan of Xavier. He's kind of in the been in the 20s range on my board. And then another kid who I'd keep an eye on if you want to take a really big cut is Isaac Rosen, who is kind of that marksman winger who can really shoot the puck, plays with pace, creative inside the offensive zone, loves to have the puck on his stick, but is probably going to face some barriers as he progresses up to the pro level and and tries to become the offensive player he's capable of being against his peers, against older, bigger, stronger players. And those kids, even when they're first-round talents, tend not to go in the first round. So I think Rosen's another kid, a lot like Barron's, who teams could just get a little gun-shy, even if they really like them. It's just hard to pull a trigger with such a valuable pick on that kind of a player. So if those any of those three kids are available in that range, I think they'd be slam dunks. That's awesome insight, Scott. Always appreciate you joining us on Locked on Senders. Everyone, you're already following him, but if you don't, at Scott C. Wheeler, and you can follow his great work at The Athletic. We're exactly 30 days, one month away from the 2021 NHL draft. And Scott, we'll be sure to have you back on afterwards. We're going to be using your draft rankings as a tool as we do our lead up. And it's a big thank you to you, man. Really appreciate you and for taking the time today. Yep. Happy to come on again. And uh, hopefully I'll be a little kinder than I was a year ago. Stick taps to Scott Wheeler for joining us, a true friend of the show. We'll be sure to have him back following the draft, hopefully to pump the Sens tires. But hey, what he is, is honest to his own opinion. You know, he wasn't a fan of the Sens 2020 draft class. That doesn't mean that you and I can't be, but it's great to have differentiating opinions. And if you remember, after the draft, he does his top 50 drafted prospects and Pilsy, he had Jake Sanderson at number 49 he can he assured us that this year he will be much much higher yeah well i hope he doesn't go down to 50 <laughs> i think there's there's only <laughs> room to he's grow just off the list <laughs> or he bumps him to 48 told you guys no i i think a spot in the mid 20s and, and that's being conservative i'd probably have him higher although he has a better idea of the scope of the league-wide level of prospects but stay tuned for all that from scott wheeler you can follow him on twitter at scott c wheeler for not only his draft rankings, but for great insightful articles on each in particular prospect. We love the one he did on Mason McTavish. Hell, it sold me on the Sens, hopefully getting him. But man, I just can't see him getting by the Detroit Red Wings. If he does, I'm going to be so excited. I'm going to need to fire up. I'm going to need to grab a built Bar, my protein bar of choice, whenever I need that boost of energy. But when I want a boost of energy, I don't want it to include a lot of calories, or a lot of sugar. And that's why Built Bar is great for me because it's low in sugar, it's low in calories, but it does pack a punch in fiber and protein. That's exactly what you want in your protein bar. And we've literally been talking about Built Bar for over a year and a half, Pillsy, but I'm still not sick of it because they come in so many amazing flavors, 16 amazing flavors to choose from. That's why we always have to throw it over to Pillsy for his pick of the week. Ross, you know the saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too? Like that, I feel like Built Bar, you know, you want a tasty candy bar, but then you're not going to get the protein benefits. You're going to get so much sugar. It's going to be full of calories. Well, 
I got news for you, Ross. You can have your cake and you can have it too with Built Bar German chocolate cake. It's been a while since we had this flavor come up and we talked with Scott Wheeler. There was no Germans in his top 100 uh, draft prospect rankings. Well, let's get some German chocolate cake going because they are definitely in the top 100 of Built Bar flavors. One of my personal favorites only 180 calories. You got 17 grams of protein, seven grams of fiber, and it's going to taste delicious. It's got real pecans, real coconut in every bite. Guys, that is Pillsy's pick of the day, German chocolate cake, Bilt Bar. Head over to BiltBar.com and check out all the amazing flavors that are available to you and great products as well over at Bilt Bar. When you check out, use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order, Built Bar, the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Make sure you're locked on, Senators, wherever you download your podcast. Subscribe, please leave a review. We do appreciate that a lot. You can follow us on social media as well, lockedon.senators on Instagram and Sense Central on Twitter. But Pilsy, you can follow Sense Central, but you can also follow at Brandon Pillar One, Mr. Verified. Are you the only Twitter account under a thousand so far? You're awfully close, by the way. So go ahead and with a follow. But that blue check mark looks awfully sexy next to your name. Yeah, well, I think Twitter finally realized there's too many Brandon Pillar impersonators, so many uh, people trying to make hot takes, like saying that Marcus Hogberg is going to be the best backup goalie in the North Division and tweeting that garbage out. Like, they got to make sure that I'm verified. So, yeah, Brandon Pillar 1, now verified. It does it does look nice to have that blue check mark. Oh, yeah, I think I'm coming soon, but I got to earn it. That's why I'm tweeting up a storm. I just said all I'm going to say to this morning is that Shane Pinto – Better have a big off season after my hot takes throughout this season. Um, man, well, that's not aging well. We'll figure it out. But yeah, that's solid, Pillsy. Love that. And it just shows another step in the growth of the Locked On Network as well. Sky's the limit. Or what did you say yesterday? His ceiling is through the roof? His, yeah, his ceiling <laughs> is going to go through the roof. I love that. I love that. And by the way, everyone listening, we are starting our prospect countdown Top 75, that starts on Monday. So stay tuned. The draft, under a month away, it's time to gear up and get going for our draft coverage. But Pillsy, there's still work to be done to figure out who will be the champion of this NHL season. Tonight, the two best words in sports, Game 7. And you know what? The best sentence in sports, Game 7 with a trip to the final on the line. It's the Islanders on the road in Tampa, They haven't scored a goal in Tampa since game two because they got waxed in game five, eight, nothing. What do the pesky aisles have to do to allow sense fans the opportunity to see Jean-Gabriel Pajot play against the Habs in the final? They're going to have to stick to their game plan, Ross. And I think what Tampa Bay has done a really good job of. Remember the New York Saints tagline up against the Boston Bruins? They were so disciplined. Well, now they're the New York Devils because they're taking way more penalties, undisciplined penalties. And you cannot, even if Tampa doesn't score, like putting that team with the talent they have and the power play units that they have on the power play, 
it's it's going to wear guys down. Like the amount of effort you have to put in to stop those guys is incredible. So they need to make sure they're staying disciplined. They need to stick to what works for them, rolling four lines, try to get Tampa off their game. You got to flip the script on them here, Ross, because this is a team that gets too comfortable when their stars are able to perform like they are. And I think the big thing here, Ross, though, is what's up with Nikita Kucherov? Is he ready to go? Where's the injury report on him? I haven't seen anything. I have no clue. He took a bad cross check from Scott Mayfield. We know that Tampa was able to get into the playoffs without him, but that would be a huge miss. Now, do you believe in history repeating itself, Pilsy? Absolutely. After game five in 2018, the Tampa Bay Lightning were up three games to two on the Washington Capitals. They were then shut out in their next two games. Do you know what happened in between that? What? Their head coach, Barry Trotz, did a hot lap in <laughs> Tampa. And what do you know? It They shut him out 4 nothing in game seven as well. Now, Barry Trotz, you might know, is the New York Islanders head coach now. So he's been in this situation, game seven on the road in Tampa Bay, and they prevailed. So do you think he can lean on that experience and lead his troops into a situation where they can come out as an, they were plus 220 at bet online going into this series. Yeah, I think so for sure. And I've been up against the Islanders for this whole run. And I'm starting to think that uh, this is the year of the Davids Ross and the David and Goliath story. I mean, I would, I would have put a lot of money on, and I should have, I'm glad I didn't in hindsight, but I would have put a lot of money on the Stanley cup finals being Tampa Bay versus the Vegas golden Knights when this semifinal started, but Montreal keeps upsetting all these juggernaut teams. The Islanders do the same. Like, let's not forget they beat the Boston Bruins with, uh, with Taylor Hall injected into that lineup. Like that is they beat Sidney Crosby in the first round. Yep. And Sidney Crosby. So like this team knows how to knock down the big players. And I think they can get it done again. And I think if we see Stanley cup final games at Nassau Coliseum, the ceiling's going to go through the roof, Ross. Just watch out. <laughs> that's, that's the word of the weeks. The ceiling. It's almost, you remember Guy Boucher used to say up the wall? The intensity yeah. was up the roof. No, up the roof. Not through the roof. It was up the roof. Man, good times with Guy Boucher. What an X's and O's guy. Former Tampa Bay Lightning head coach. But mm-hmm. I think they found a good one here with John Cooper. Although, as you recall last week, John Cooper tied with DJ Smith for coach of the year voting but game seven tonight it's going to be spectacular theater and as you mentioned one of the x factors here is what is the health of nikita kucherov we know the isles have four lines and that's why another reason i'm cheering for islanders habs in the final both teams are just going to roll four lines over and over and over again they're both big and mean on the back end and they both have great goaltending as well so that's my hopeful Stanley Cup final. I know that the casual fan might not appreciate that. You want the high-powered offenses, and I understand that. But the grittiness that it takes to get through three rounds of the playoffs, I think would be exemplified with those two teams representing the NHL. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I didn't want Montreal or the New York Islanders in the finals, but if they're up against each other, like you said, I think it, it's going to make for some good hockey for like the real hockey fans. Like, like remember, what was that? Um, the classic was a Tampa Boston, one of the best playoff games ever, the one nothing game. Like, yeah, game if you're seven of the conference final in 2011. 
Yeah, hey, game seven conference final here tonight. So if you're a true fan of hockey, you know, like those are the kind of games that get you going. They're on, you're on the edge of your seat. Every goal matters so much. So this game seven, I think, is going to be just like that. Ross, I'm going to give my official prediction four three Islanders in overtime. What's four, yours? Three. Four three. You think yep. So? Yeah, I'm gonna say just because I am going Islanders, I'm gonna say two nothing. I'm a, no pressure, Varlamov. I'm saying two nothing for the New York Islanders, and that means Nassau Coliseum is gonna stay open. Let's go. Let's let's bring the the friggin'. Well, I don't know what's gonna happen at Nassau, but hey, we we got to touch on this and like smarten up. If you're in Montreal, like you you knew this was gonna happen. When, like the team wins. And they're flipping cop cars in the streets. Like, does that make any sense? Literally no, no sense at all, Ross. I don't like, hey, I'm all for getting rowdy and celebrating. Like, we've had like two years of being shut inside, no celebrating, no entertainment, no luxuries, no having fun. But like, why are you, why are you doing that to your own city? Like, that's taxpayer dollars right there that you're destroying. So I, I don't know about it. Like I'm all for having a good time, but like damaging property and uh, all that kind of stuff is, is a little silly in my idea. And if you want to know more about that, ask the people in Vancouver in 2011, what that can end up doing if you let that get out of hand. So just, just cool it, Montreal, cool it a little. Hey, we always ask to, to put a reply to our tweet when we put out the episode for on this one, Reply with what would happen in Ottawa if they won such a big game. Like, <laughs> would there be a huge line at the Elgin Street McDonald's? I saw somebody tweet that out. Like, what what would happen? Like, would everyone start jumping in the canal? Maybe I, I don't know what the comparison would be, but I can tell you that. Although I do feel like sometimes it's people disguised as fans and they just want to cause trouble, and True. so they throw on a jersey and just try to fit into the crowd. So there is that being said. Oh, one more thing. I mentioned uh, that Bill McCult, we were talking about the Yashin for Spezza trade. He's the answer to a Sens trivia question. So the question is, which Senators player, not goalie, of course, player has played the most games with the Ottawa Senators without scoring a goal? And Bill McCult is the answer to that. 70 games for the Ottawa Senators, eight assists, and the Mike Riley zero. Next, next to the goal category, but hey, he's had a great career as a as a coach. He's now the associate head coach of the Michigan Wolverines. So hey, maybe if uh, Kent Johnson somehow ends up in Ottawa, we could get Bill McCult on the show. I'm sure that guy's got stories for days. But Pilsy, have a great weekend, man. Thanks, uh, great week with Scott Wheeler, and I'm excited to get into this draft talk starting next week. Yeah, I mean, this uh, this draft profiling is a long time coming. We did a really good job of that last season. And, and it, it's fun too, Ross. Like, I enjoy it too, even though there's going to be a lot of players that we profile that aren't anywhere near the Sens draft pick range. But it just makes it more exciting on draft day when you're like, I know, I know that guy. Like, we talked about him. Oh, he's going to be a great fit with this team. Or what is this team doing drafting this guy? Like, it just makes watching the draft a little more fun. So for all you Sens fans... Follow along with our draft ranking profile because you're going to learn a lot about these players. And in three, four years down the line, you're like, oh, man, I remember talking about that guy when he was an 18-year-old kid. And now his projections are coming true or aren't coming true. So just adds a little more intrigue to the draft. So I'm stoked to get started with that. Of course, we're going to discuss their on-ice impact, their potential, but also any cool stories that uh, make them unique as individuals as well. I think that adds the personality 
influence on draft day because we can get carried away with numbers and, oh, is he a top six guy? But, you know, there's people and families behind these players, and uh, it's it's the best day of their life to date when they get drafted to the NHL. It's a, one of my favorite days as a fan as well, just seeing the joy. And I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be virtual again this year, which is too bad. And uh, I'm still mad we didn't get our opportunity to go to Montreal for the draft last year, Pilsy. But we'll be at the Sens home opener for sure. We can't wait to meet everyone who's been loyal listening to the podcast throughout Another off-season, not 310 days and 179 episodes, but um, we can't wait to have Sense Hockey back. And the draft is the first step to get there. So have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to be in the Spotify green room tomorrow morning, 8.45 a.m. Join us there for Brandon Piller. I'm Ross Levitan. This has been the Locked On Senators podcast, your team every day.